But also what's part of that is that they are also sovereign, right? So Trump, the president cannot tell them what to do and what he's suggesting in, in terms of the states opening up, being more coordinated nationally, we didn't have in terms of the states shutting down, right? Which is probably also a problem, right? States shut down slowly, right? Each mm-hmm. state or did not shut down. It wasn't that we said every state close your border, do the sheltering in place all at once. What up, what up, what up? This is Three Brothers No Sense. I'm Tavares Ferguson, and we're bringing to you a special episode of Three Brothers No Sense. We're bringing a special brother for the next few weeks, Brandon Davis. He's going to talk to you guys about COVID-19 on an educated tip. Brandon, take it away. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Welcome to our second episode in our special uh, series podcast concerning uh, the coronavirus and outcomes for African-American community. Uh, This episode, we'll be talking about uh, economics and the economic fallouts from uh, the COVID-19. And I have, again, two very, very uh, uh, talented guests, very, very uh, prominent economists. And again, for this episode, we are punching above our weight class. Uh, our first guest is uh, Dr. Rhonda Sharp. Uh, she is the president and founder of the Women's Institute for Science, Equity, and Race. Uh, she was named uh, Black Scholar You Should Know by uh, BestSchools.org and Black Enterprise. She is the co-editor of the Review of Black Political Economy and served as the past president of the National Economic Association. She was elected to serve on the Center for American Progress's National Advisory Council for Eliminating the Black-White Wealth Gap. Her research focuses on three areas, gender and race inequality, the, the diversity of STEM, and the demography of higher education. She is a reoccurring guest on the BBC's Business Matters and was the co-recipient of the 2004 Rhonda Williams Prize for the International Association of Feminist Economists. Our next guest is uh, Dr. Gary Hoover, who is currently a President's Associate's Presidential Professor and Chair of the Economics Department at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, Dr. Hoover received his PhD in economics from Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, since then, he has been published numerous uh, scholarly papers, book chapters, and reviews on areas of public policy of income redistribution and poverty, political economy, and ethics in the economics profession. Uh, Dr. Hoover is also the co-chair of the American Economics Association Committee on the Status of Minority Groups in the Economic Profession. Uh, He is the vice president of the Southern Economic Association and the founding and current editor of the Journal of Economics, Race, and Policy. He has also been a guest professor at universities of Hanover and Constance in Germany and the University of Vienna in Austria. 
And I'd like to thank you both for participating in this. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. All right. So I guess before we talk about, you know, what's going on right now, can, can we just take a one step back and can you give us a, a, a rundown of what the black economy was looking like or what was the black economy like or the kind of life for African-Americans before we the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, in, in both ways, both in terms of income and in terms of wealth, blacks were trailing behind. So to give you an idea, if we're just talking about income, which is going to be a measure of things like uh, wages, interest, rents, uh, profits earned, uh, and other income earning activities, blacks had a median income of about $35,000, while whites, on the other hand, had a median income of about uh, $59,000, $60,000. So about half. And this was all going on before Corona hit. In terms of wealth, which would be the amount of accumulated assets that one holds, um, whites had median wealth, household wealth of about $91,000, while black families had median household wealth of about a little bit less than $6,500. So that, you know, if you think about intergenerational transfers and being able to transfer something on to your children to help make their lives better than yours was um, they were already trailing significantly and were in occupations that did not lend themselves to uh, wealth building avenues, which has only complicated the problems now under Corona. Okay. So when, when you say those, those occupations that don't allow for wealth growth, what type of occupations are, are, are those? But, but actually, let me let me say something, Brandon, about, about what Gary was speaking on in terms of wealth and the and the gap. Uh, I've been having some conversations with folks since we've been talking about just home ownership. And so, when we talk about wealth, most folks hold their wealth in owning their home. And as we're looking at the coronavirus or, or thinking about this epidem epidemic, one of the things that I don't think we're really thinking about is folks who own their home have different space at which to shelter in, right? So if you own a home and, and um, Gary and I, you know, both are our homeowners, I can go out in my backyard. I can go in my front yard, right? I can, I can actually get outside of the confounds of my four walls and go out in other space, which helps, I think, in terms of the stress that people may, may have in terms of sheltering in place, as well as you know, just, just being able to get some fresh air and exercise in ways that people who aren't homeowners and renters and live in, in apartments don't have. So when we're having this conversation, thinking about the wealth gap, it isn't just the wealth gap and, and necessarily the value of your homes, and potentially how you can leverage that. But having, owning a home, having your own space where you can go outside and get outside of the four walls is, is something we're not talking about as we're experiencing this pandemic, which is something that we need to think about, again, the benefits of home ownership. So it's more like a quality of life effect. Having, having resources, economic resources, just improves overall your quality of life. 
that you're able to go outside, sit outside in your backyard, enjoy the wind and weather and things like that? Well, I, I'm, I'm saying that, but I'm also suggesting that it can, for some people, it's going to minimize risk, right? Because mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. control who comes in and out of my home, who touches my doorknob, right? Who touches, who, you know, who touches my space. But when you live in an apartment or you, you know, especially apartments, as we think about it in, in spaces like New York, where there are high rises or complexes where people may be entering a building through a specific door. You don't know who's touched that door. You don't know who's hanging out in your hallway. And, and we were even talking uh, about, yeah. this, about mm-hmm. New York. You can't even really go in your fire escape if you wanted to get out and get some air. One, because you don't know if your fire escape is safe and you don't know who else has been on your fire escape. So I'm suggesting a little bit more than just the quality of life and being able to leverage, or at least I'm talking a little bit more about leveraging resources, but there's a sense of safety right, of well-being, ways in which we can protect ourselves from, I'm going to put in quotations, from the virus by being homeowners. Okay, so those those occupations, right, they're, they're having people, the occupations that don't allow for wealth growth, that would ha- cause someone to not be able to purchase a home that lives in these these, these congested areas or these, or these high traffic uh, communities where they can't know who, who, who's been there or here. Uh, what, what type of occupations are those? Are we talking? Are we talking about? I know we're talking about hourly people. Are we talking about uh, service industry people? What what kind of occupations are those? Right. So we we see that if you were to look at some of the, the more broader statistics, that uh, blacks are occupying industries such as office administration and support staff. Right. Um, you might have an office job, but in that office job, you are a part of this the support staff, um, Blacks have an oversized role in what's known as the service economies, right? Um, So you're working, but you're working in maybe retail or some type of sales occupations. Sure, they are salary, well, you know, they're going to be hourly employees, but the ability to, to generate um, significant amounts of income required to then purchase homes are going to be limited. Okay, so so Brandon, I'm I'm going to chime in and push back a little bit on on what Gary Gary said, only because I think that we are are conflating some issues, right? So mm-hmm. your ability to buy a home based on your income really is going to depend on where you live. So we want to be really careful to overgeneralize that just because you're an hourly worker that you're not going to be able to purchase a home. Right. So mm. that that, you know, we want we, we really want to we want to be we want to be careful of that on that. And I think the the other thing, and this is my soapbox, is about disaggregating data and not talking about necessarily where blacks are employed, but take a step back and think about where black men are employed versus black yes. women and where they're employed. And we're not generally employed in the same occupations. So when Gary said office and administrative support occupations, that's primarily where black women are especially as we're talking about in terms of essential occupations that are going to have to go to work. When we're talking about Black men, that's not where Black men are employed. Black men are employed in occupations like moving moving and material op- occupations, right? That's the broad category. Um, production occupations and transportation. And, and if we think about transportation, that brings us into the stories that we're hearing People talk about the MTA workers in New York 
who are um, disproportionately being impacted by COVID. Uh, there was a story about the bus driver in Detroit who has died from COVID. So the activities mm-hmm. that Black men and women are in are different. And, and again, we want to be careful when we're talking about hourly workers. Some hourly workers are able to purchase homes. Now, they, they may be a little bit, may put them more at risk in terms of losing their homes if there's a downturn and their hours are cut, but it doesn't necessarily say that you can't buy them. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about these, these different avenues of work for black men versus black women, when it comes to the, the, the stay at home orders and the shutting down of black essential jobs, is that disproportionately affecting Black women because they're not working in those trans in those like service industries that are essential, or is it is and is that placing a more of a risk on Black men, or is or, or how is that working economically? I think that's a that's a that's a that's a compound question, right? So there there are mm-hmm. a couple of issues that, that we're talking about here. One is whether or not um, folks can work at home, right? So if you're an essential worker, and and that's some of the, the categories that I just mentioned, thinking about healthcare workers thinking about transportation, one would think if you're in office and administrative support occupations that you ought to be able to work from home. If we're talking about sales, like I'm always surprised that Home Depot and Lowe's and other stores are uh, considered essential. And even if you think of, think about Home Depot and Lowe's, your home improvement stores, you are more likely to see men in the store, women as the cashiers. And then when you come into grocery stores, you're more likely to see women as the cashiers in various retail spaces, which you know Gary was just saying a, a bit earlier about sales and, and retail. So I, again, I think it depends on what occupations we're speaking of and, and thinking about is essential. And then there are things like when you think about barbershops and hair salons. So pillars that are essential in the Black community that not only provide services to a segment of the population, but they also then support the businesses that are around them and the fact that now they're not open. So so I think sometimes it's not just about whether or not people can actually go into work, but thinking about um, the the role that they provide in in the communities. And and again, I kind of switched that a little bit from essential workers just sort of thinking about small business owners like the, the, mm-hmm. the barbers and the, and the hair salons and the roles that they play. And so those, these individuals in these, like, I guess these uh, independent, I don't know if there would be independent contractors, but if you're a barber or, or you do hair at, the, at a salon, uh, how does that affect your ability to access uh, like unemployment? If you're, if you're like, an, I guess, I don't know if they're independent contractors or what, but if you're renting a chair, I mean, how does that affect your ability to like um, collect un- unemployment? Wow, that that that's a good question, Gary. Do you know that one? Because I don't. Um, actually, I don't. Um, you know, because you are an independent, um, I, I do know that there were loans set up for small businesses, but we've exhausted those already. So where do we go from here? Will those people also have access to unemployment insurance in the days and weeks to come? Um, I don't have a good answer for that one, so I won't try to to mm-hmm. that space. However, what we do know is that these types of businesses work on small margins, right? So the margins yeah. are very tight, and there will be, you know, a limit to how long they can stay closed down and still be viable in the future. 
So I guess, I mean, um, speaking about the unemployment, these people, these non-essential workers becoming unemployed, I guess the, the my question would be, we, we we always had this idea that uh, unemployment was really low. That's what the, 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 the administration was saying before this. Unemployment was super low. It's been the lowest ever for African Americans, lowest ever for Hispanics. And now we're seeing even more unemployment, proportionally speaking, because we know that our, our, the unemployment rate for African Americans is different for for whites. So proportionally speaking, is there is there any like you have any thoughts into like how this is going to reverberate through the African American community as opposed to how this unemployment is going to reverberate through the white communities? Well, once again, I think Rhonda was correct earlier on when she said, you know, we have to think about this disaggregately as we think about the impacts on men and women. Um, however, what's going to be critical are the occupations where people are being impacted the most and what's, where, how much of that space is occupied by, by Black folks. That will dictate how high unemployment will be. And then it also will matter on how long this thing drags out, right? The longer it drags out, the greater we will expect to see the impacts reverberate through the entire economy. So, so I'm, I'm going to piggyback on what Gary Gary said about thinking in the disaggregate. So, <clears throat> there was a story on NPR talking about with the first wave of unemployment. I think what this first 700,000 or so, 60 percent of them were women, and those women were in hospitality. So, if you think about folks who are setting up event planning potentially doing wedding planning, those were the first set of folks in, in many ways that got hit. At events were being canceled. You're, you're not having um, functions at venues. Now you're unsure about planning a, planning your wedding. Those That population was women. If we continue to think about the hospitality sector, which is, again, being hit because people can't travel. So you don't have people coming into hotels. You're not going to have, um, as we as we think about both spring breaks, the college spring break, as well as the K through 12 spring break, the coronavirus is on the tail end of some of the case, I mean, the higher ed fall breaks, but it was very much covering K through 12 spring break. So your Disneyland, they're not they're not open to have service. And, and again, these are more in the hospitality space. Men and women are both in these spaces, but in very different jobs. So you might have your women are going to be the folks who are interfacing more so with the public doing the check-in, um, who are uh, planning the events. And then you're going to have the men who are on the side with the maintenance. They're probably doing more of the, the lawn care service, which, which you know, is always interesting. Or when I'm talking to folks, they're like, why is that an essential? Like lawn care, why is lawn care so essential? And I tell them, like, you really can't have spaces overgrown because then we go from having the coronavirus to all kind of critters running around and gosh only knows what what they're carrying. And if you think I'm a maintenance person or if I'm in the janitorial staff, I have a little bit more, not tons, but I've got a little bit more control over who I'm going to be interacting with in ways that you don't necessarily if you're event planning or you're you're the check-in person. But those are occupations that they heavily hit as a result of the coronavirus um, coming through. So, you know, as, as it, and I think it's going to be more than just having a state's reopening, but it's going to impact as we, when we're able to travel, right? When people be, are, are, are more comfortable, traveling will dictate 
how what we think of as low-income workers, those in hospitality and service, begin to see their jobs coming back. So along the lines of what Gary said, thinking about how long this is going to last, but then also thinking about these sectors are not just going to be about opening, but when when people feel free to travel and be in crowds. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Gary, you're, you're from the uh, Milwaukee, correct? That's right. All right. right. Do, do you want to raise? All right. And so, uh, what, like, do you have any insights of like, you know, what, what's happening like in a major city like Milwaukee? Uh, what what it looks like on the ground for African Americans there? Uh, can you give us any like, you know, city level uh, insights? Well, the, one of the the more interesting things about Milwaukee is that it's it's not just segregated it is hyper segregated right in a way wow. that most other states are aren't I mean, excuse me most other cities aren't and so you have this community of black folks who are predominantly concentrated within the north side so their interactions are going to be more so um, another interesting feature of Milwaukee and its, dem- and its demographics is that um, most houses are either duplexes or fourplexes. So, you know, the idea of the single family home isn't as common there where you're going to see a lot of multifamily, small multifamily units, which increases the opportunities for interactions with others outside of your immediate family, which also increases the opportunities for the virus to spread, which if you've looked at any of the statistics coming out, uh, Milwaukee has been very, very hard hit. The The black community in Milwaukee has been very, very hard hit um, because of, of those and other uh, factors, which we can get into in a bit. Uh, you know, Lots and lots of uh, blacks in the community rely on public transportation, you know, in that side of town. Interestingly, on that side of town where most blacks live, there's only um, one grocery store, right, for this for this really large community. So you say, well, you know, look, you you can't go to that grocery store. You have to go to one on the south side or you have to go to one outside of your community. But if I don't have a car, uh, the only way I'm going to get there is by bus, which further exposes me to other people who are doing the same thing. Or I go to this one store, grocery store in my community, which is probably overwhelmed at this point anyway. Um, further increasing those interactions, further increasing opportunities for the spread. So, so I was just going to piggyback on, on what Gary um, was saying in terms of one of the things that we've been doing at the Women's Institute for Science, Equity, Race, and Gen, harping very much on having the data disaggregated, is, is thinking about what are the vulnerable populations. And in the cities that we see that have been hard hit, Milwaukee, Chicago, Detroit, we are arguing that it's not just enough to think about what the black population looks like, but to figure out what are our proxies that you can look at for those that are vulnerable. So in a place like Milwaukee, if you think about those who are 60 and over, that, that you know, Black folks are 36% of the residents that are 65. 
But if you think about who's in the city, who's 60 years old and poor, for Milwaukee, that number jumped. And 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 for for me in particular, that's a conversation that we're not having, right? We're not just, you know, people are just talking about uh, how Black a city is and what the death rates are, but we're not talking about who are the vulnerable populations in, in that city. We're not talking about what does the demographic, what do the demographics look like for those who are 60 and older? Now, someone might say, well, well, what about the population that has hypertension or diabetes? Absolutely would agree. That would be the best thing to know by race, ethnicity, and gender. Not just how many Blacks, but how many Black men, how many Black women, et cetera. The challenge with that mm -hmm. is there isn't a census that looks at health, but we do have broader census data that comes out that gives you some proxies for that. So if I come back to Milwaukee and I think about the number of Blacks in the city, again, who are poor, over 60, and report having difficulty with care for themselves and difficulties with mobility. And I'm going to, you know, I'm assuming by, by making those, by putting those two together, that these are going to be folks who are in poor health. That population in, in Milwaukee is, is 39%, right? 39% of the Black people are um, fall into that category. I'm sorry, 35% of those 60 plus are Black. Right. That's 39 percent. And if we're looking at this and this is the part that I think is, is it, well, I wouldn't say interesting, but more disheartening is that we're not asking people to disaggregate this data by race and gender, even though The New York Times is telling us, looking at data coming out of Spain and Italy, they are suggesting to us that, that the COVID virus is disproportionately impacting black men. But we're not seeing the numbers reported by that. And, and um, I thought Gary would, would, was going to mention it. And, but one of his high school mates, right, who is a Black male, died from the COVID virus who was still in Milwaukee. But we're, we're not getting our data in, in that way. And I think those are the things that we want to pay attention to. The same thing with Detroit. If you come to Detroit, 83% of the 60-plus of the population in Detroit is Black. Mm. Right. That's, you know, you think about that city and they tell us 65 plus is the vulnerable population. That's, you know, a huge part. But, you know, that population in Detroit is black. So so I get I mean, ask a question. Another question about Milwaukee is uh, are those blacks that are living in those uh, in those duplexes and fourplexes on the north side? Are, are they also the uh, the service industry workers in, in, in Milwaukee, are those people still having to go out to drive the buses to do what they have to do to make sure people eat, stocking groceries and things? Well, to the extent that anything is still open, you know, and it's it's it varies from place to place what we're going to call essential workers. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that for a lot of folks, they don't have any job at all. Right. They're under unemployed. So. Mm -hmm they're not going out to work essentially or not because they don't have any um, any employment avenues at all. But we do know that those who are employed are employed in more so service industry occupations. And that's not going to be helpful at all. Um, I would think that some people would say, you know, look, I wish I did have the opportunity to go earn something during these uh, most difficult of times, and they're, they're, not, they're not having the opportunities to do that. Unemployment so, in Milwaukee is rather high. 
So, so when we're seeing these numbers, like uh, uh, Dr. Shaw was talking about, these increased numbers of like they say, like seventy percent of the deaths in this state, seventy, you know, sixty percent of the deaths in this state are African Americans. Um, are so are those those are is that because those individuals are experiencing this income and wealth inequality? Is that not like a direct causal, but is is it a causal mechanism? Is, and, and, if, and if you think, believe so, how much of this uh, income inequality and wealth you think is contributing to it? Because, you know, because there, there are other factors like environmental injustice, environmental racism, people living next to factories and dumps and stuff like that. But how much of this inequality you think is contributing to the vulnerability, to making African-Americans vulnerable to like a pandemic like this? Ron, I'll let you... Uh... <laughs> you would. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, Brandon, I would say that some would argue a significant portion, somewhere between 70 to 90 percent, and, and here is why. When you talk about segregation, when you talk about racial, in, in whether it's environmental racism, if we're, if we're talking about access to health care, if we're talking about food deserts, so much of that is intertwined in, in income, right? And your ability to um, escape is going to be a bad word, but escape, move out of those mm-hmm. areas, right? And so when you cannot do that, right, that's usually because you can't afford to live in the better neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So some argue that 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 you know seventy to ninety ninety percent of it. Now, I, I I really appreciate that you asked that question because I was just talking to a former board member yesterday about about two weeks ago. I was on the BBC talking about drilling down this data, and the host said to me, "Oh, but as you're asking people to drill down the data, what you're really going to identify are the symptoms." And he laid out a couple of things. And then he said, and so what you'll find is that these people aren't educated to know to do better. And I thought to myself, he must have forgot that I was black, right? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody did not tell him like that one of your guests is going to be black. And I had to remind him. I didn't have to, but I chose to remind him. In the U.S., the structural racism is in every aspect of our lives. And that, you know, when you live in a food desert, it's not about you don't want good good choices for food selection. It's not available for mm-hmm. It's not that you don't know to go to the doctor, but maybe there's not a doctor near you. And when you go in, the doctor does not take you seriously. So mm-hmm. I said to him, you know, in many instances, we've done our part, whether it is thinking about getting the education for those of us who do. We move to different neighborhoods. And in the case of Black women, we know that it's not education, it's not income. Black women still have higher maternity mortality rates than their counterparts, right? So it's, it's, not, it's not even a matter of, of sometimes income and education. So for him to say that we don't know better, I was like, whoa. <laughs> uh-uh. And I say that to say that, that I worry as these headlines continue to come out about the number of Blacks who are disproportionately impacted. And then you see that followed up with the comorbidities of hypertension and diabetes, that people mm-hmm. who do not understand the, the structural racism and the exclusion. And I'm going to say, I'm going I'm to do not just structural racism, but structural exclusion, because for a Black woman, it's not about race for me, right? It's about the fact that I am Black and a woman, which is not about mm-hmm. race, 
um, that they don't understand how that impacts the choices that we have. And so what it may appear to others is that Blacks are disproportionately being impacted because they don't know to do that. Mm-hmm. And that so, way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess um, next question uh, uh, moving towards. Okay, so we've had all these. We've had several bills come out. One that expanded, uh, uh, added six hundred dollars to unemployment uh, benefits, and the other um, uh, was given was given out. Everybody's getting twelve hundred dollars this week and five hundred dollars per child or something this week. And so I guess for, just for the audience, I would like to dif- differentiate between monetary and fiscal policy, right? So I think people people get those confused a lot. So what the Fed is doing as opposed to what the government is doing, if we could just like jump on the Fed first and then go to the government and then come on down to the $1,200, $500. Right. So monetary policy is typically controlled by a central bank. In the U.S., that's going to be the Federal Reserve Bank. And they are charged with um, thinking about the money supply and interest rates. So one way that you could increase economic activity for a country is to lower interest rates. In effect, what you're doing is you're making money cheap, right? So I lower interest rates. I'm making money cheap. That should invigorate the economy. It should get money moving. It should get investment going. Investment would then lead to uh, job creation and stuff like that. Um, That's versus fiscal policy, where a government controls fiscal policy through basically spending projects that the government can engage in and through taxing. So one of the administration's ideas that were put forth, and I don't know where it stands now, was to say, you know what? we could cut the payroll tax, right? Um, payroll tax being basically when you're looking on your, you know, your check stub and you see that FICO. It says, well, we could cut that down a bit, therefore mm-hmm. putting more dollars into people's pocket to spend. The, I- the idea being with people, I, I just don't, you know, know about about the taxing part of it for those who don't pay taxes already, how how a tax cut to them is necessarily beneficial. But that's the difference between monetary policy, which is interest rates and the money supply versus fiscal policy, which is government spending and government taxing policy to try and do the same thing, stimulate the economy and, and get money flowing. And so I guess... Uh, Go ahead. For one second, on um, uh, so so when Gary said it makes money cheap for 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 mm-hmm. those of us for those of you who don't speak econ, um, that's literally about borrowing, right? So when interest rates are low, it makes it cheaper for individuals and corporations to borrow money, and that's that's what that's that's what we mean when we say it makes money cheap. Right. That's that's just. The econ talking me coming out. So, <laughs> so it, it, it makes money cheap for individuals as well. Yes, for, for everyone. Because so, usually when interest rates are down, they're going to get to borrow. Um, and I, so, so while neither one of us are, are macroeconomists, even though I think Gary may teach it, I don't. But I remind my students that it's one of the ways that you can get a feel for what the economy is doing 
is because when interest rates go up, it's an indication that they want to curb spending, right? So they, so if you think about it as interest rates go, when interest rates go up, it's not, not only more expensive for you to borrow, but it generally means if you also, it means if you have money in the bank, you'll get a higher interest rate on your savings. So when interest rates go up, it encourages people to save money, spend less, and that will often happen when, when folks are concerned about inflation. And then when you see interest rates go down, it is the thought that they want you to spend money. It's a disincentive to have money sitting in your bank account. And it's also, as Gary said, cheaper for you to buy them. Mm-hmm. So what, what are your thoughts about the increase of $600 for the unemployment insurance and also these payments of $1,200 and $500 per child? Because uh, these, I don't know, they, they have unemployment you get for a certain period of time. These checks are like a one-time shot. And so what are your thoughts about, the, you know, economically speaking, what are your thoughts about those those policies, but also how you think they will affect the African-American community? We were talking about, Gary and I had this conversation yesterday um, um, in terms of, again, this is one that you have to separate right? for, for people who make money. And, and I'm not talking about a hundred and you know the hundred and fifty thousand dollar cutoff, but the perception may be that twelve hundred dollars isn't isn't any money. And I was thinking about this last night, and I doubt that it's any surprise. But that twelve hundred bucks is if you divide that by four, was that's what uh, three hundred dollars a week, which is a forty hour work week for someone who makes seven twenty five an hour at minimum wage. So mm-hmm. I'm, I doubt that that was really a surprise that it was twelve hundred bucks, but that twelve hundred bucks will twelve hundred dollar uh, check will essentially replace for minimum wage workers a month worth worth of 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 earnings. For someone who's not minimum wage, it may not provide provide much relief, right? Especially if you're you're you're, you're you don't work for a company that is that has qualified for the payroll payment protection where people are figuring out ways to continue to pay their workers, even if they are um, at, at reduced rate so that that people are, you know, that they're still working for them, which I think is the difference between being furloughed. When you're furloughed, you are still on the payroll versus being laid off or unemployed. Or theoretically, you're no longer on, on the payroll. So I think you know, that's one. And then the second is, as we think about the $500 that comes along with it, Heather Long was on the NPR this show. She's a Washington Post reporter. And so she was sort of answering some of the behind the scenes questions. And one of the things she said is that the checks that we're getting are not stimulus checks because the idea with the stimulus check is it's extra money, right? For, for uh-huh. people to go spend to stimulate the economy. What we're seeing right now are, are more so relief. Right? They're trying to provide people with economic relief. And then the other side of that is if you have a household where there are dependent and their dependents are above 17, those folks are getting money. So you're not getting money for your child who is above 17, even if they are dependent. I think not only for the black community, but for many Asian, Hispanic households where they're going to be intergenerational in terms of dependence, 
folks are going to be impacted in a negative way. They're not going to be getting the money that's potentially going to replace money that they've lost by looking at the twelve hundred to five hundred dollar checks that are that are coming. So, so if you were claiming your your kid's a freshman in college, you claim your kid on your taxes. Not getting the check. You're not getting the check. Oh wow! Even though that kid that's, has come back home because universities are closed. That's what she said. That's what she said this morning. And I was looking at something earlier. And uh, yeah, 17 years old. If you're a dependent, not if you're over 17 and a dependent, not getting the check for that child. And we have a colleague, Nina Banks, who is an economist at Bucknell, and that's what she said for her son. I think this is mm. his first freshman year, not getting the check. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, a lot of parents claim their kids in in college, you know, for for years. That's right. You know, so this it's not it's not just a freshman. This could be like a sophomore or senior. You know, that's your right. parents are claim, claiming you on on their taxes. So wow, that's that's a that's a that's a major loophole. That that is. But now the other side of this is, and and I don't think that this is that that there's conversation about this, and that is people who are getting social security whether it's for retirement or disability, they're going to get a check. Um, I've even seen that if you don't file taxes because your income is so low, you can go to the IRS and fill out your information to get a check. Like Heather even said this morning on the interview, if you are a homeless person, you can get a check. But it's likely to be a paper check, which then means where do you mail it if you're homeless? And yeah. And there's also been the conversation for the people who didn't do direct deposit that, you know, it's, it's going to be longer. Now, something I saw that I wasn't expecting, if you get a pay check, it'll have Donald Trump, I think, either face or name on it when you get the check. Yeah, I did see he, he put his name, <laughs> he put his names on the check. That make the money spin faster. Put his name on it. <laughs> you, you're funny. You're saying you'll be in a rest of cash that's that car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They ought to, yeah, that, man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, this is so. Is this what what is necessary as, as an economist? What are you concerned about moving forward as far as the economic policy? Because it doesn't seem like this is going to be over anytime soon. And they keep talking about opening up, opening up, but they keep saying we need testing to open up, and we don't have testing. So that means to me, we're going to need more economic policy, more you know, like you said, relief, not stimulus. And so, from the economics perspective, you know. Speaking to both of you or asking both of you, what do you think we should be doing? What do you think the government should be doing to 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 alleviate some of this, you know, some of this, you know, uh, economic burden? Okay, so I'm going to go first because I probably have the non econ answer and Gary's probably going to have the econ answer. Um, You you know, for for me, what I think the government should be doing is not an economic policy. For me, the first thing I want the government to do is to disaggregate this data so that we can really see who's being impacted. Right. Tell me if it's black men, if it's black women, at what age group they're being impacted. Then I want you to, once you've done that, I want you to tell me how many of these folks that are being impacted by race and ethnicity, especially if they're not 65 plus, how many of these folks are the essential workers? How many of these folks are the folks that are out here working who are catching the virus, contracting the virus and then dying? Because that's mm-hmm. it to me. Before you put anybody back to work, you've got to figure out how to protect these workers so that they can actually go to work. Because if you're not going to protect them, we can open up all we want. Folks are not going to show up at work. And if people do not feel safe enough to show up at work, we're going to have issues 
not, you know, it, it's not, it, we're going to have real supply chain issues, right? Whether it's talking about, we're talking about the food that we need, who's going to, who, who's going to be in the fields gathering, I guess that's probably not harvesting the crops to mm-hmm. who is going to be working at the plant, making the toilet paper that we need, the Clorox that we need to who's going to be at Amazon, Target, or the grocery stores, making sure that we can go in and purchase. So so for me, it's less about an economic issue as much as it is about a data issue to figure out who's dying, what are their occupations, who's really at risk. Then you can talk mm-hmm. to me about economics. Yeah. Actually, you know, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, you know, the the, the economy they, they say is like moves like animal spirits. Isn't that what they are saying? Like it's this type. It's it's a it's a lot about belief in the market. And so my 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 thing would say, if they open it up, don't I have to believe as a as a consumer that things are safe enough for me to go to the restaurant and eat? Yeah. Right. And, and so and so how, yeah. Go ahead. And as Rhonda said, to to be willing to go back to work, right? As a worker, mm-hmm. I have to believe that it's safe enough to go back to work. However. You know, the cynic in me um, wonders about exactly what Rhonda said. I think we should disaggregate the data, but I'm afraid if we do and we see that it disproportionately affects black people, then mm-hmm. they might say, well, that's all right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit worried about that. particular. Maybe we shouldn't know exactly who, because then you'll care more. Once you see that it's it's a particular demographic, Maybe you start to lose interest. You say, well, it's only going to be that group. But otherwise than that, you know, I I think the I think Ron is exactly right. The, The other thing about the economy is that what these people seem to be missing, in addition to what Rhonda said, was that overwhelmed uh, medical systems can't operate. So let's say that we just put everyone back to work. And we let people who were going to get sick get sick. Our medical system, as it's designed now, is already showing great weakness and cracks. Mm-hmm. If we were to open this thing up prematurely, given that we can't even handle what we have now, um, I think we do ourselves more harm than good. If you ask any employer, right, what is it that you want out of a workforce? The two things that they're going to tell you is I want one that is trainable and one that's healthy, right? Because mm-hmm. I cannot um, have operations without workers who can be trained and productive. And I can't have workers who are not here because they're, they're not well. That in, in lies the complication that you have to take into account those two things. But what I find interesting is the two things we're, we're least likely to want to pay for this in this country, given that employers say the two things I want is a trainable and a healthy workforce is education and health care. Um, the two things that we need the most, employers say they want the most, seems to be the two things that we're least inclined towards paying for. Um, so this idea to rush back to open up the economy seems to go against their own thinking. So I, I don't I don't understand it. Another, another question about opening up the economy. It seems like the, the, the message is that some states don't have a lot of cases so we can open those states up. But realistically speaking, those states, Wyoming, Idaho, 
North, you know, South Dakota. I mean, how much economic impact would it have if we opened up Idaho, Wyoming, Montana? But, but that's nuts in and of itself. That's like saying, look, we're all on this airplane, right? But those people sitting in those seats over there, um, they don't have to wear their seatbelts, right? If the plane goes down, we're all going down, right? We're all going to suffer, even those who are sitting in those seats over there. It's it's an idiotic it's an idiotic premise to say that we can open up parts of of the country and states in this country, right? As long as those states are still in this state and there's commerce taking place between those states and other states, we have to have a more national pro, a, a more national policy as opposed to one that just says these individual states will be able to open up. And what we're seeing is what happened in South Dakota. South Dakota was mm-hmm. a state where the meat processing, processing plant went down because the workers all got sick. So small, we will see the ramifications of that later. Uh, and, and I think I think something that Gary said is the fact that the states are in the United States. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely true. But also what's part of that is that they are also sovereign, right? So Trump, the president, cannot tell them what to do and what he's suggesting in, in terms of the states opening up, being more coordinated nationally. We didn't have in terms of the states shutting down, right? which is probably also a problem, right? States shut down slowly. Right? Each mm-hmm. state or did not shut down. It wasn't that we said every state, close your border, do the sheltering in place all at once. It was sort of, you know, a ripple effect. So as people are talking about when Trump knew, when whomever knew, when the WHO mm. knew, the first case that was the, that was called corona was January 20th in Seattle. But if you mm-hmm. think about coming across, so I am in Virginia, I don't think we shut down until like the the 23rd of March. Mm. Right. Somewhere, somewhere around there. So you think about it. It's two months after the first case. And I think a lot of that is because one people I think one, they didn't understand the spread, nor nor did they take it seriously. And I sent out a newsletter this this past Saturday that I was at awe that someone, an older uh, black person on my email, said they would be sharing the newsletter because they know young people, not old people, young people who think that the coronavirus is a hoax. And these would be yeah. young black who think that the yeah. coronavirus is a hoax, right? And so, 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 you know, just to piggyback on what Gary is saying in terms of the opening, that one, I think is, I think he's right. I think it's going to be a challenge because states are sovereign. And, and many of these states are worried about their residents. And so when, when you, when Gary said being cynical about having the data and seeing that it's disproportionately black folks and folks may be like, yeah, well, you know, Perhaps they're expendable. Go ahead and open up. Mm. It's literally what I tweeted out maybe two days ago that, you know, there are all these hashtags, reopen New York, reopen Virginia, reopen Maryland, um, hashtag shut down Michigan, I think. And, and my tweet was, if this was disproportionately impacting white people, would we see this in the mm. same way? I was just going to say, I think that that's the, the, the trick maybe for us to stop using that word disproportionately impacting black folks and literally show how many white folks are yeah. I would like to know. I would like to know who's who worked in that that pork uh, processing plant in in uh, North Dakota. You know what what type of what what was the you know because a lot of those plants like that import people to do stuff like that, or that they they like because I know there's one in Kansas 
that has a meatpacking plant. And from what I understand, that city is majority minority, majority minority, but Hispanic. And then all of them work in that meatpacking industry. Uh, I guess I have a, a yeah. So like I, I, you know, no, go ahead. Well, isn't it interesting though that the same people we might be deriding are the ones we need to actually. Huh. It's mm-hmm. interesting. Man. To some extent, we need them to operate some of these industries. Mm-hmm. Not all, but some. Uh, I guess I have uh, one more question. This is kind of a it's, it's a question, but it's also kind of like in the in the in the sphere now. So we talked about lowering like lowering taxes, I guess, getting rid of payroll taxes uh, as a as a way of providing relief. Another thing has been talking about is like raising the minimum wage to like fifteen dollars or like hazard pay. And so. What 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 are what are your thoughts about if so, so if right now they came out with a new plan that say okay everybody working we're gonna have a national minimum wage of fifteen dollars just boom everybody gets fifteen dollars if you work um your thoughts on that as opposed to like the 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 the, the taxing the lowering taxing side of like trying to create uh, relief fifteen dollars where right where are people going to be working so if people in, until we I think I think it's a premature argument at this point because no one has if, if everyone is at home and no one's really if everyone's sheltering in place and no one's working, you know, the minimum wage could be even higher than that. But I can't draw a minimum wage if I'm not working at all. I think you meant hazard pay, right? So so for yeah, so people, oh, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. every, 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 mm-hmm. yeah, I was going to ask for that clarification that you're asking for. The essential workers who are working, if they're yeah, if you're, not at fifteen dollars an hour, you're going to make mm-hmm. everybody everybody's hazard. Like that would be the minimum, the minimum wage for if you're if, if you're working right now. Yeah, okay. if you're stocking groceries or if you're you know delivering pizzas, whatever, Uber drivers, everything, the minimum wage is not fifteen dollars. Okay, so I, I, I was like, I got two thoughts on that. I think so, so part of me says I, I think that works. I think that's not a bad idea. Not just from the standpoint of the hazard pay, but if you think about again the, the the likelihood that for many households there are multiple folks who have been impacted by the coronavirus, having the person who's going to work potentially making enough money to offset that, I think I say yay. The part that mm-hmm. worries me is that for some people. As, as we know, as economists, there's this, this term called your reservation wage, which is mm-hmm. what's the least amount of money you would take to do a job. For some people, that $15 might entice them to come to work, which means now we have more folks who are at risk. Mm. So it, it, might, it might pull people back into the labor market who shouldn't be in the labor market because of... Because uh, not sh- shouldn't be because shouldn't be because we don't need we don't need more people out and about. Uh, right, we don't. I think I think it shouldn't be from the same standpoint that we may be putting more folks at risk who are then going to mm-hmm. put more. Folks at risk. Because those because those jobs would be those stocking groceries, delivering groceries, um, you know, uh, you know, cooking food in a pizzeria or you know, restaurant delivering food, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. in personal interaction. So um, I think both Gary and I have seen um, Greg Price's paper that is looking at social distancing. And mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. And, and what they find is social distancing works 
but it's some caveats like unless the city is uh, has a high proportion of black has a high proportion of people who are self-employed i believe has a high proportion of folks who are foreigners right to which i was mm-hmm. like okay so wait a minute greg <laughs> like so when does social distancing work right because then what they're finding is all of the issues that we're seeing got too many black folks in your city problem if you're self-employed we think about those are often occupations where people need to interact with other folks whether it's landscaping or some kind of construction or something in the service industry and then if we think about the population when he says foreign born many of those many of them with the exception of what we're talking in the tech sector are also in occupations that are more service interacting with folks so that again um uh, be- becomes you know, becomes a challenge, right? Mm. So, do 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 either of you have any uh, uh, parting thoughts? Any anything that you do you think is is is, is uh, important to say uh, uh, pertaining to uh, the topic or or in general? Because um, I think we've had a really good discussion, a lot of good information. So, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to say anything you feel like needs to be said. Yeah, disaggregate that data, right? And, <laughs> and we have to. And and I'm with Gary on on the on the on the being the cynical. But we've got to get people to disaggregate this data and not to just talk about blacks who are dying or women who are dying or by county or by age group. But we have to know if, as in Spain and Italy, if this is disproportionately killing black men in the U.S. And and I will say this, the one group that we didn't talk about a prison, right? We're, we're not hearing much conversation about the coronavirus in the prison, but imagine mm-hmm coronavirus outbreak spreads to prisons, there are really, I mean, it's going to just, it's going to wreak havoc on, you know, it's not just that we're not going to have Black men in society, but we're not going to have Black men because they're going to be far more vulnerable if it gets into the prison system. I want the data disaggregated because I am concerned that we may very well lose a generation if it is indeed disproportionately impacting Black men. We're going to lose a different a generation of black men, and that has implications not just for the U for the U.S. but worldwide as a body. Mm-hmm. Gender balance becomes an issue. Mm-hmm. Well, the last thing I'll say is this, and this is something I tell all of my students: is that you know, typically, good politics makes for bad economics, and um, the policies I'm seeing. Although might be politically expedient towards a, a particular base, uh, I think could cause havoc in the economy for all of us if not done correctly. Right. So we have to think about what will move the needle properly for all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this. I know you. I know you. You, know, you guys have a busy schedules. Everybody's classes have moved online, so it's just a lot. So I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Again, uh, Dr. Rhonda Sharp, uh, Dr. Gary Hoover, thank you, thank you, thank you.